Let's open our Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. If you have a heart that's been taught by the Spirit of God, you delight to open the Word of God. Because in these pages are the very words of God for us. These are not the words of men about God. These are not their thoughts or ideas or philosophical or theological speculations. These are the very words of God, and may we learn something from them this morning. Amen. We are working our way through the second epistle of Corinthians. Paul is addressing this pagan, lascivious, profane city in Achaia, Greece, the southern half of modern Greece. This city was comparable to our modern Las Vegas or San Francisco, filled with abominable wickedness, pagan idolatry, and a Jewish synagogue. Paul went in there and preached the gospel. Some of the Jews were converted and some of the Gentiles were converted. The Lord appeared to Paul in a vision at night and said, No man's going to hurt you, Paul, in this city, because I have much people here. Amen. And Paul stayed there 18 months, and a large church was established. He left that church. He wrote the first epistle because he heard of numerous errors at that church. And they had a faction at that church that didn't like the Apostle Paul. It was a faction of false apostles out of Judea, Jewish men, who wanted to take advantage of the large church at Corinth. And they despised Paul. And for most of the second epistle, if you read it with understanding, you will see Paul defending himself against this faction of men that didn't like him. This is the book, when we get to chapters 10, 11, and 12, where he describes all of his sufferings, where he tells them, you think you're an Israelite? I'm an Israelite. You think you're a Hebrew? I'm a Hebrew. You think you've suffered for the cause of Christ? The Jews have whipped me five times, 40 stripes save one. None of you Jewish men have ever been whipped by the Jews because you're teaching a religion of compromise between Moses' law and the gospel of Christ. And so we come to chapter 4. In chapter 3, last Sunday's message in the morning, the apostle compared the Old Testament with the New Testament. And he said the New Testament is so much more glorious than that Old Testament. And that's the message I preach. He said in verse 6, God hath made me an able minister of the New Testament. You false apostles are still preaching the old one, which is passing away. Which isn't even glorious. Because it's a ministry of death. Anyone who preaches the Old Testament has to preach death. Because the Old Testament is, do this and live. And no one can do it. Right. The Old Testament is, thou shalt not, and if you do, you die. To preach the Old Testament was a message of death and condemnation, which is what we saw last Sunday in chapter 3. The New Testament is, Jesus paid it all. Amen. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life, and he died the substitutionary death, and he has saved us from our sins, and that's what Paul got to preach. Amen. We covered that last Sunday. Now we come to chapter 4. And I don't want to linger on it too long. I want us to see the message that Paul was sending to the church at Corinth with the whole fourth chapter, which is further defending his person and his office of an apostle of Jesus Christ. But he also left some choice, smaller lessons within the chapter. Amen. And now I'm going to tell you 
ahead of time where we're going. Overall, the chapter is to defend his person and his ministry. He'll be describing his personal conduct under, under suffering. He'll be describing his attitude. He will describe his faith. And he will describe the gospel he preached and why there weren't that many that believed it. But there's other lessons, and here they are. Here's what I want you to get. The true methods of God's ministers right. are going to be described. Amen. Number two, how glorious of a thing the gospel is. Amen. And how glorious it is if you believe it. Right. It is not because you're wise if you believe the gospel. It's because God was merciful to you Amen. if you believe the gospel. Right. Third, I want to show you Paul's character and conduct under severe trials so that we might have an example to follow under our minor trials. Right. Fourth, Paul had great faith in another world. Paul looked beyond this life to the next life, and that is what made him great. And may the Lord conclude this morning's sermon by us looking beyond this life to the next. And may it make us great in the service of Jesus Christ. Amen. Those are our four lessons. Let's go. Verse 1. Therefore. Whenever you see the word therefore in any writing, you should ask, what is the therefore? Therefore. What does the word therefore mean? It's drawing a conclusion. He's drawing a conclusion. Based on what I've just described about my superior ministry, here's what he's going to go ahead and say and add to that lesson of chapter 3. Therefore, because of what I've explained to you in chapter 3 about my ministry under the New Testament, therefore, seeing we have this New Testament ministry, as we have received mercy, we faint not. The Apostle Paul was a minister of Jesus Christ by the mercy of God. What was Paul doing when he was put in the ministry? What He was on a road from one city to another city. What was the city he was coming from? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And he was going to what city? Damascus. Damascus. What did he have in his hand? A letter. Letters of authority. A letter from the high priest saying, if you find any Christians in the city of Damascus, you may bind them, put them in prison, or bring them back to the city of Jerusalem. That was what he was doing. But God had mercy on him. And Paul always remembered God's mercy in delivering him from what he had been. Right. And he tells us in 1 Timothy chapter 1, several, ver several verses where Paul said, It was by the mercy of God that I'm a preacher of the gospel. Because I once persecuted that way. I persecuted Jesus Christ. I persecuted his saints. And so when he says these words, As we have received mercy, there had been abundant mercy shown to the Apostle Paul. He, he would have been the last one that anyone in the early churches would have thought would have been converted. That is to tell you never to give up on anyone if you're praying for the conversion of someone. Right. God is able to convert anyone. If God could convert Saul of Tarsus and make him into the greatest apostle, is he limited at all in his power to change a man's heart and to convert him and bring him to a knowledge of the truth? Not at all. Not at all. We faint not. Seeing we have this New Testament ministry that we've obtained from the Lord Jesus Christ by His mercy, we faint not. We have the greatest message to preach that has ever been brought to planet Earth. You know, if someone came to you, if, if a spaceship landed in your yard, a UFO, a flying saucer, landed in your yard and told you that there was only two feet deep 
in the middle of a flower bed, a box with U.S. dollars in it amounting to a hundred thousand, you would think that you had been blessed that day to have some little green men come and tell you something like that. But who cares about any message like that? What's it going to do? Today, a hundred thousand hardly goes anywhere. It just disappears. It just gets spent. It's just money. Won't do you a bit of good when you're laying in a hospital bed with an oxygen hose at your nose. Because the Apostle Paul brought a whole lot better message. Amen. He brought a message about the resurrection of the dead and salvation from hell and condemnation to eternal life in heaven. And brethren, whenever we get anything with the dealings with anything that deals with money confused with heaven, we are very carnally minded at best, and we're not even born again at worst. Right. Because there is no comparison between the two. No comparison. A true Christian. We read in Psalm twenty nine. We read in Psalm twenty nine that they give God glory in His temple. Right. And, and see, all of us are supposed to be in the temple of God, which is the local church. We should want to give God glory. Our whole focus on glory and excitement should be on what God has done for us, what He's promised us, what is waiting for us through Jesus Christ our Lord, not on anything in this life, no matter how special it might be. It should be on heavenly things. Right. As we'll see as we go through this chapter. But Paul said, I have such a great message, and Timothy has it with me. We do not faint because we have such a great message to preach. That's verse 1. And here's how he preached it. We have renounced... I'm, I'm inserting. I'll, I'll not do that in case you're confused. I'm trying to help you understand the verse. But have... He's speaking of Paul. He's speaking of Timothy and himself from the first verse. But have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That is Bible preaching. Three things that it is not doing, and one thing that it is doing. First of all, it is a renunciation and rejection of anything dishonest. There are men that use dishonesty in the pulpit. And they can be dishonest several ways. I mean, all you have to do is watch Benny Hinn, and you know that there's some dishonesty going on. Because no one's healed at a Benny Hinn crusade. If one or two are healed, it's by the power of the devil and not the power of God. The world knows it. Christians know it. The only people that don't know it are the dupes that go watch Benny Hinn. They want to watch that little effeminate man in his white suit and white shoes come out and blow on people. There is dishonesty in those crusades. Those crusades are, work, are just working people up into a frenzy. It is crowd psychology. It is not that complicated. <clears throat> if you listen to music loud enough, long enough, in a large enough assembly, and other people going up in front of you fall backward when Benny Hinn blows on you, when you go up, you fall backward. It is not that difficult. Renounce the hidden things of dishonesty. Paul did not have any dishonesty in his presentation of the gospel. Now, he is not mentioning another group of preachers here by name, but some of them were at Corinth right. who were using the word of God dishonestly. They were walking craftily, and they were being deceitful in the word of God. Now, in chapter 2, he already said, Paul's already said, for we are not as many which corrupt the word of God. Even in Paul's day, 
There were many that corrupted the Word of God. They used the Word of God to teach something that it did not teach. And see, what kind of men were Paul, was Paul opposing at Corinth? Men from Judea that were Jews that were teaching in order to be saved, you needed Paul's Jesus plus, plus the law of Moses. You had to be circumcised in order to be saved. You need to keep the law of Moses in order to go to heaven. And so they corrupted the gospel of Jesus Christ from Paul. They presented it dishonestly. They presented parts of it without presenting all of it. That's partiality in the word of God. Paul said he renounced all of that. We have renounced the hidden things of dishonesty, not walking in craftiness, nor handling the word of God deceitfully. Men will corrupt the word of God to make money, to gain converts, or to build themselves a position of power and influence. Let me show you. If you'll turn with me, holding your fingers at 2 Corinthians 4, look back at Matthew 23, where Jesus addressed two of those motives for men corrupting the message. False teachers, false preachers, corrupt the gospel, corrupt the word of God to make money, to build influence, and to gain converts, to build a large following. And it's going on today. All three counts are going on today. Matthew 23, verse 14. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer. Therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. Those men in Matthew twenty three fourteen, they made long prayers. Why were they doing it? To devour widows' houses. What does that mean? Did they go and eat the siding off the house? Money. They got the money. The poor widow that's been left with an inheritance by her husband, left with an estate, there come praying ministers. And when I say praying, I'm using it both ways. Right. They come in for a pretense, make long prayers, but they're really praying P-R-E-Y, which means they're going to devour and take advantage of that widow, and they're going to use religion as their cover to take her assets. Yep. You know, every time I see a little, a little hanky being sold in the television, or a book that could have been published for $3 being sold for 19 and, it, and you being reminded that, it's a, that you can have it as a tax, it's tax deductible on your tax return, I know that someone is trying to fleece the faithful. But not really the faithful, because the faithful wouldn't be watching it. Right. They're trying to fleece the simple, because the simple would pay something like that for something from one of those ministries on television. Here's the warning right there, that men, men would make a pretense of long prayer in order to get dollars out of a widow's estate. Second is in verse 15. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, you make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Now that isn't politically correct language. Most people don't like preaching like that. And that's why they crucified Jesus Christ. If he came back today, there would be no more that followed Jesus Christ of Nazareth than there were when he came the first time. They just have an illusion of their Jesus. There is another Jesus in the Bible. 2 Corinthians 11 tells us about him. The Jesus of the Bible would be offensive today as much as he was back then. 
And here he is blasting the Pharisees for compassing sea and land. Oh, they had their missionary programs. They were using every means that they possibly could to make one more proselyte and add one more to their count. How can you tell? Just go into one of those churches and look on the sea, on a side wall. Now, I've, I've been in quite a few of them. On the side wall, they're going to have a board, and they're going to have a board that's telling the attendance to everybody. They're worried about those numbers. They got to build numbers. And so we're in a mega church growth thrust in America right now to build numbers and followings. When what counts to the Lord Jesus Christ is the integrity of the Word of God right. and spiritual fruit, not numerical fruit, spiritual fruit. Amen. Change lives, holy living, walking with Jesus Christ. That's what counts. Paul. And you know, we could work this over. Look at, look at Isaiah 30. There are so many passages in the Bible, and they're in the outline. It'll be on the internet in a couple of days. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 10. I, there's so many examples in the Word of God about ministers who corrupt the message in order to build the crowd. They'll compromise. They'll be partial in the Word of God. Isaiah 30, verse 10. Let's go back and get it. I'm going to go all the way back to verse 8. Isaiah 30, verse 8. Now go. This is God's instruction to Isaiah. Write it before them in a table and note it in a book that it may be for the time to come forever and ever. Does that sound like we need to change the Word of God? Does that sound like we need to change the worship of God? It sounds like God has set things forever and ever. Verse 9, that this is a rebellious people, lying children, children that will not hear the law of the Lord, which say to the seers, see not. And to the prophets, prophesy not unto us right things, speak unto us smooth things. Prophesy deceits. Get you out of the way. Turn aside out of the path. Cause the Holy One of Israel to cease from before us. Can I interpret those words? Do you understand those words? Those words are this. Preacher, we are tired of hearing doctrinal messages. We want to be entertained and hear exciting things like the First Baptist Church down the street. They have athletes come in. They have rock concerts for church services. Why can't we do any of those things? We're tired of hearing doctrinal messages all the time. Would you get that old-fashioned stuff away from us and give us some of the new stuff that's more exciting? Our church could grow if you would just get rid of that old-time religion and bring in some of the new contemporary worship. It sure will grow. It will grow with the unregenerate. Because the ones that will come in will not be the saved at all. They're coming in for the show rather than the Lord. This is, this is a warning. Paul didn't preach that way. Look at Malachi. Can you find it? Where, where is it in your Old Testament? Front or back? Last book of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 2. Let's look at another example. The Bible's full of it. Out of all the preachers in the world at any one point in time, are the most preaching the truth or the most corrupting it? Most are corrupting it. The problem in the Word of God has been the majority of ministers were unfaithful. Only a few were faithful. They're exceptional. Paul, the apostle, ordained many, many ministers. He said he only had one that was like-minded with him. What was his name? Timothy. Timothy. Were there other ministers that Paul counted faithful? Yes. But one just like Paul? Timothy. 
He said, I have no other man like-minded like Timothy. When Paul was on trial in Rome, and there was a great big church in Rome called the Church at Rome, that the book of Romans tells us about, how many stood with him when he was on trial before Caesar? No man. He was all by himself. Malachi chapter 2, verse 7. Look at this. Malachi 2, 7. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge. You should be able to go there and learn something from the priest's lips. This is Old Testament priests. And they should seek the law at his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But ye are departed out of the way. Ye have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. The condemnation here was the priests in Israel, after their recovery from Babylon, they were being partial in the law of God and were leading the people out of the way of righteousness. And it's very easy to do. And we have had our own trials in this church over the years with the very same thing. It is very easy for a church to go astray in carnal Christianity. What does that mean? Living like the world while professing to be Jesus Christ's saints. May God save us forever from ever doing anything like that again. Come to 2 Timothy chapter 4. 2 Timothy chapter 4. I know we're supposed to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, but we'll make up for it if you'll come to 2 Timothy chapter 4, or we'll try. 2 Timothy chapter 4. Seeker-sensitive, they call it. The megachurch growth syndrome. Seeker-sensitive. Remember, I've been trying to teach you what that means so that whenever you see it, you'll understand what it means. That's their choice of words. We're going to be sensitive to what we call seekers. Therefore, we will make our church as close to a nightclub as we possibly can so that John Doe, who on Sunday mornings is usually sleeping off a hangover because of what he did on Saturday night, can come to our strobe light show and hear our rock band and hear our little pep rally called a church service, and he'll be comfortable there. That is what seeker-sensitive means. Their choice of words. We will be sensitive to what we call seekers, and a seeker is someone sitting at home watching television who has no interest in the things of God. Now, when I look that, and so they want to adapt their service not to put pressure on anyone. What that big First Baptist Church of Malden used to have out in their big billboard? If you come back, we promise not to throw the book at you. What in the world? I thought the man of God's whole life was to throw the book at people. Amen. Isn't that what we just read? Amen. And they're putting it on their billboard. There's, a re- there's an explanation for all of it, and it's right here. Verse 1 of chapter 3 says, This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. You are living in the midst of Bible prophecy being fulfilled. Amen. From that first verse of chapter 3 to the fourth verse of chapter 4, 21 verses. I'll give you five verses. Down through the end of verse 5 in chapter 4. 22 verses. It is one lesson. It is one lesson 
about perilous times. When something is perilous, that means it's very dangerous. Dangerous times would come in the last day. And the dangerous times are described very carefully. Dangerous times are not the United Nations, John Kerry winning the presidency, the communists taking over the world, AIDS wiping out planet Earth. None of those things are dangerous to Christians. Right. There is something that is dangerous and it's described very carefully. Men shall be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. The church basketball team is more important than the message preached on Sunday morning, Sunday night, and Wednesday, if there even is a message in most churches anymore. The perilous times are those, according to verses 4 and 5, that have a form of godliness, but they deny the authority or the power of it. They go to church, they pretend they're worshiping God, But when God tells them to change their lives at home, with the television, with their music, with what they read, with what they talk, think, do, toward their spouses, in their home, toward their masters, toward their government, they don't do it. Right. Because they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power that's in the gospel, which is God telling us how to live. Right. We live in the fulfillment of that prophecy. And here's what the preachers would be like. Verses 6 and 7 of chapter 3 say that preachers would creep into houses and lead captive silly women. Now, how do preachers creep into houses? What's the easiest way to do it? TV TV and radio. The husband, who is supposed to be the spiritual guardian of his wife. Can I prove that with the Bible? Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians 14. And if a woman will learn anything... Let her ask her husband at home. 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35. So the husband goes off to work, and the woman thinks, listen, her heart is honest. It's just ignorantly honest. She wants to be as spiritual as she can be, so she sits down and turns the radio on, and in comes a creep, like James Dobson. Jimmy Dobson, a humanistic psychologist who has picked as his market niche a so-called Christian segment of the American radio population. And he gives you some effeminate little stories to make all the women feel so good. And he is selling them a bill of goods about child training and about godliness that is not from the Word of God. Jimmy Dobson is not a preacher of the Word of God. Jimmy Dobson is a humanistic psychologist who has picked his market niche. Jimmy Dobson thinks the panacea for all human problems and all relationship problems is self-love when this passage tells me that the first characteristic of perilous times is anyone saying that the love of self is important. Can you see it in verse Mm -hmm. 2? 3-2. 2 Timothy 3-2. For men shall be lovers of their own selves. That is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is... Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. God already knows that we already have one loving relationship that is perfect. It's as high as it gets. Our love of ourselves. If we're to be like Jesus Christ, we would learn to love others as much as we love ourselves. And look, isn't that wonderful? They creep into houses, and so they turn the radio on, they turn the television on. It's Jimmy Dobson coming in the left ear and Benny Hinn, Benny Hinn coming in the right ear. And these women are at home being fed that kind of stuff. It says, 
They shall creep into houses and lead captive silly women, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I'm not making this up. I'm telling you that it's a prophecy of the last times when it would be perilous. Right. It would be dangerous. True. The man goes to work and he comes home and he's, he's basically taught that the woman's going to be the spiritual leader in the house. She's the one that sits down and reads little Bible story books to the children, makes sure the children goes to Sunday school and where's the man. God's religion is based on the man being the leader of the home. The man teaches the children. It doesn't say, mothers, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It says, fathers, bring your children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Why do we turn to this passage since we're studying 2 Corinthians 4? Because I want to show you chapter 4. Here's what Paul told Timothy. And here's what Paul has told every minister since by this passage of Scripture. I charge thee. Therefore, because of these perilous times of preachers taking captive silly women, of religion having a form but no power, I charge thee therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Now is that is that some pretty weighty name dropping? Oh yeah. That's what that is. That's an oath. That is being sworn into office. I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who is coming soon to judge the quick and the dead. Preach the word. Don't have lock-ins. Don't worry about basketball teams. Don't have drama teams. Preach the word. Don't have Jesus rap, Jesus rock, or Jesus swing. Preach the word. Don't have movies. Don't have artists. Don't have actors or athletes. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. That word instant means to be insistent, pressing, urgent. You be instant with people, pressing on them the duties to obey the gospel, in season and out of season. Because sometimes, brethren, when I look out at your faces, it's not seasonable for me to be picking on you. Do it anyway. But i got to do it anyway. Amen. You know what God told Ezekiel? Make your forehead as hard as a flint, and don't you dare ever change anything because of the faces you see, or I will confound you before your hearers. Right. That's what it means. It means to always be pressing whether the people want it or not. And do you know what? In most churches, there's a little group of men that think they're the guardians of the pulpit. What are their, what's their titles? A deacon board thinks that they're the guardian of the pulpit. Can you find that in the Bible? Can you even come close to that in the Bible? Nope. Not close to it. And they tell the minister what he's supposed to preach. And when he doesn't preach what the people want, out he goes and they get themselves a new one. We're going to have it explained to us right here. Preach the word. Be instant in season, out of season. Reprove. Rebuke. Exhort. With all long-suffering and doctrine. You know, I don't read too much in there. Entertain. Comfort. Please. I read reprove, rebuke, and exhort. And here we are. Here's the prophecy. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth, and shall be turned unto fables. And we are in the fulfillment of that prophecy. Amen. They do not any, they do not any longer want sound doctrine. I can tell you Saddleback Community Church this morning in California is not preaching sound doctrine. It's preaching some little tiny sermonette to make all the seekers that don't really care about Jesus Christ that much 
How do you know if they don't care about Jesus Christ? How can I be so bold in that statement? Because it doesn't matter what this says, how a worship service ought to progress or how they ought to live in their lives. That's how you tell. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Jesus didn't say, if you love me, you'll make up a new praise band of Harley riders. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Back to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. We live in those times. Go talk to a charismatic. Go talk to one of these followers of Benny Hinn. Go talk to some member of a praise band. Go ask them to come and hear an hour-long sermon of Bible doctrine. They hate it. They despise it. So Paul said in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians 4, We've renounced the hidden things of dishonesty. We don't walk in craftiness, nor do we handle the Word of God deceitfully. Here's what he did. Manifestation of the truth. To make something manifest is to make it very clear and visible and obvious. What's a ship manifest for? When a ship's passing through locks or into a port, how does an inspector know what's on the ship? By the manifest. manifest. It's a long list of everything in there. Does an inspector, even if he had 20 of himself, if he could clone himself, could he inspect a ship quickly? A ship is huge. So how do you know what's on a ship? By the ship's manifest. I I give you that illustration to always remember what the word manifest means in the Bible. Paul said, but by manifestation of the truth, is to make it open, visible, obvious, plain, simple, clear, easy for you to grasp and understand. That is how Paul preached. There was no philosophical reasoning like the typical Presbyterian pastor. There were no dreams being told because that's just your imagination. There was Bible truth being opened up to where even children could understand it. Manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves by what means? By a fine suit or by manifestation of the truth? Manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Every time we preach, we know that we are God is watching us and He will hold us accountable and so we just open up the truth as plainly as we possibly can. That's how Paul preached. He laid the truth on the table. What do you want to do with it? He made it as obvious as possible, as clear as possible. What do you want to do with it? What are you going to do with it? Somebody would say then, especially since he had detractors in the church at Corinth, but why don't you have better results? If you're such a great preacher, why don't you have better results? So Paul answers it in verse 3. But if our gospel be hid... It is hid to them that are lost. I just lay it out on the table. If men do not accept it, but they reject plain, simple, doctrinal preaching, it's because God has not given them a new heart. Because when there is a child of God that encounters a preacher of the gospel that lays the word of God open, that child of God has within him a heart that loves what he hears. He doesn't care if that preacher is a dumb fisherman. Right. Does he? Are you thinking of some names? Mm Mm-hmm. He doesn't care if that preacher is a dumb fisherman and every other sentence might have a grammatical error in it. Did you know that when Peter preached, you could tell in an instant that he hadn't gone to school? Yep. It tells us that in Acts chapter 4. But you know what? When an illiterate fisherman opens up the gospel, there is within the heart of a regenerate man 
a soul that loves that message. Yeah. And he doesn't care what kind of education the man has. He just knows he's heard something that matches up with what's in his heart, and he loves it. Right. And he says, that man's got beautiful feet. Amen. How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel, even if they're illiterate fishermen. Jesus chose men like those illiterate fishermen because his ministry was not based on education to local seminary, but one based on John the Baptist, the first Baptist. Do you think John the Baptist had a seminary degree? Do you think he presented himself in very classy, glossy brochures describing himself as Dr. John the Baptist? Or did he have wild hair? He was popping a locust every now and then for strength. While you're eating your food bars, he was popping locusts and taking a dip of wild honey out of some little pouch he had, and then he'd cut loose again. That was John the Baptist. But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Now, this is amazing. This is where we differ from so many other churches. They think, here's their theology, the lost need to hear the gospel so that we can get them saved. This is where we differ. Amen. I need to get the gospel to the lost so that the lost can be saved. But Paul said, our gospel is hid to the lost. Amen. Because a man has to be born again first before he hears the gospel. Then that man loves what he hears, believes what he hears, and wants to obey what he hears. Look at John 8.47. John John 8.47. While you're looking at John 8.47, remember what Jesus said to Nicodemus. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Which has to come first? Seeing the kingdom of God or being born again? By those words. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He has to be born again first. You can't preach to a man that's not born again. He'll never believe what you're telling him. He doesn't want what you've got for him. He right. thinks it's all foolishness. Look at Jesus. This is how Jesus would say it. John eight forty seven. He that is of God heareth God's words. Amen. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Amen. God has to come down and regenerate us first. This is what we believe. But it's right here in this passage. God regenerates us and gives us a new heart. Then we hear the gospel. And we love it. We love it. But you try to preach to someone that's not born again, all you have is a bunch of carnal church members. And the only way you can keep those church members around is to tell them that they're saved, give them a church office like deacon when you don't really need any deacons, or you let them be members of the praise band or run the strobe lights. So you keep them all there. But they're not even born. They don't really love Christ. They don't really love heaven. They don't really love the word of God. They don't really care about keeping all of God's commandments because you've got the unregenerate in the church. Look at what the verse says. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Did Paul think that he could do anything for the lost? No. He had to go and preach the gospel where men that were elect and born again would hear it and rejoice at it. When Paul went to a city, did he go to the prisons? Did he go to the brothels? No. Did he go to the sports venues? No. Where did he go when he went to a city in every single occurrence in the book of Acts? Synagogue. The synagogue. Why did he go to a synagogue? That's where people already worship God. Amen. Because they're the only ones that are going to hear his message. Right. Because they're already born again. They just didn't know the truth well enough. 
They're in there thinking that a Messiah is still yet to come. And Paul would get up and say, you like these Old Testament Scriptures? Oh, yes, brother. Amen. And he'd say, well, let me show you a few things. Let's turn to Isaiah 53. And by the time he got done, he told them about Jesus Christ. And he had in that city a nucleus of people that feared God that had just been shown the truth of the gospel. Right. Amen. When he stood up, this is how he would address his crowd. Men and brethren, and whosoever among you feareth God, Amen. to you is the word of this salvation sent. Amen. That's a strange statement, isn't it? But that tells us that we're correct in understanding the order. And we thank the Lord for that order this morning. God chose us before the world began. Christ died for us on the cross 2,000 years ago. Sometimes, sometime in our life, God the Holy Spirit has regenerated us and given us a heart to want to be in this place this morning and hear the Word of God. True. And then God sent us a preacher to preach that Word of God to us. And because we had a born-again heart, we heard it and we loved it. Amen. That's the, that's the order of salvation. And it's an order implied by that third verse because it said if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. But it's not hid to those that God's given a new heart to because even though it might be an illiterate fisherman preaching it, they hear it and love it. And I'm in deep trouble. Do you know how deep a trouble I'm in? Look at that and look at the rest of that chapter. <laughs> Somebody needs to tie a rope around my ankle. And whenever I say, let's try this little rabbit trail, give me a tug. <laughs> this is important because we live in the perilous times of the last Amen. days. Right. Yes, but if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. Watch how fast we can finish the chapter. Verse 4. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine to them. Why can't the lost believe the gospel? I mean, a lost man who's not born again. Someone that God has not yet regenerated. Most of them not going to heaven, but going to hell. They haven't been born again. Why can't they hear the gospel? Why can't they see the gospel? Because the God of this world, who is the devil, Satan, the God of this world, has blinded the minds of them that believe not, so they cannot see. Satan is stronger than any man. And unless God delivers a man from the power of Satan, he is going to remain under the power of Satan for as long as he lives. Right. Now, you say, well, that's not fair of God to leave men under the power of Satan. Why isn't it? We made that choice in our great father, Adam. Right. We had a choice of God and the devil. We had a choice of life. Did you know they could eat the, tree, the fruit off the tree of life? Right. They had the tree of life. It's going to be in heaven when we get there, the tree of life, because you're going to need the fruit off it. And God's going to give that fruit off it to you because you're going to live forever. We had living forever with God in a perfect world with a perfect wife and a perfect husband. Let's not get that mixed up. With one little commandment. You can eat off of every tree of the garden. Thou mayest freely eat, just not that one. And we chose Satan over God. We chose death over life. We chose hell over heaven. We chose dysfunctional living for the rest of our lives and all of our grandchildren for functional, glorious, righteous living with God. Right. We made that choice. Don't look at that verse and think God's not fair. God gave us what we wanted, even though He gave us every advantage possible to have chosen the better. Jesus the Lord and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. Paul has gone back to verse 2 at this point. Verses two, verses 2, 3, and 4, you should see, are all connected. That's why very, not very many believed. Now he's jumping back to explain, why was I so careful 
in denouncing dishonesty, craftiness, and deceit in my preaching. Because I am not out to present myself. I'm not trying to build up a following for the Apostle Paul. I'm out to preach Christ Jesus. That's why we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. If there's one thing a minister better be, he better be a servant of his hearers. He better want to get down and help each and every one of them, whether they're children or old, friendly or not so friendly. And that's what Paul was. Paul served. How much money did Paul take from Corinth? None. He served. Verse 6, For God, who command the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And if you're learning the English language and you want to learn about prepositional phrases, try the last half of that verse. It's got more prepositions than you've used in a sentence in a long time. What Paul is saying here is, the lost are blinded by the God of this world. They cannot see Jesus Christ. But God has shined in our hearts. And by what power did he shine in their hearts? The same power it took to create light in the beginning. Amen. But God, who commanded the light to shine in the darkness. And I'm going to preach on that tonight. I'm so excited about tonight. I love the voice of the Lord. Mm-hmm. And tonight's going to be all about the voice of the Lord. Lazarus, come forth. Amen. What happens when Jesus Christ talks like that? forth. <laughs> Does a dead man get up and come out of a, out of a tomb? Amen. Right. Yes, he does. When Jesus said, Peace! Be still! Great God. What happens to a storm? That's the Lord we trust in. And I hope I can comfort your hearts tonight with that. But you know what? God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And that's what it takes for anyone to ever believe the gospel. Right. God must say, Live. And we're born again by the Spirit of God. We're not doing a thing except hating God at the time that it happens. True. God changes our heart and gives us a new man. That's why in the Bible it's called the new man, the old man. We now have this new man. When the new man runs into a preacher, which God helps arrange, when a new man runs into a preacher, he says, that is the truth. I love that. I love that. The new man comes first. If you tr- If you try to change that order, You've got the old man obeying God in order to get to be a new man? Uh Uh-uh. That is not taught in the Bible. God gives us a new man, and he responds. And Paul's saying, God, who commanded the light in Genesis 1-3, commanded the light to shine into Timothy's heart and into my heart. And that's what I'm preaching to you. God gave it to us. The light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All of God's glory is found in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ of Nazareth, and I preach Him. I preach His birth, His life, His death, and His resurrection, and His seat at the right hand of God. Verse 7, But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. Earthen vessels. What does that mean? The clay. Do you know what? You're made of clay. The next time you go to a funeral, be very polite and very respectful. Just reach in and squeeze that person's hand. You will know in one second of time what this verse is talking about. We have this treasure in earthen vessels. Paul is, Paul's not talking, he's talking about ministers. Timothy and himself. Right. We have this treasure of preaching the gospel in a body of clay. As soon as you touch in that, touch, squeeze that hand a little bit, you'll know exactly what the human body is made out of. It's made out of clay. Mm-hmm. An earthen vessel. Not steel, not stone, but one made out of clay. 
and form. Paul said we're an earthen vessel. We chip easily. We crack easily. We're not all that durable. And God has put the, commissioned the gospel to us with earthen vessels that the power might be all of God because there is really no strength in ourselves. Sure. That's what Paul's saying in verse 7, that all the power, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Paul said, we are trouble on every side. Now listen, brethren, you are not troubled like Paul. We all have troubles. We don't have troubles like Paul. I don't have the time now to go to 2 Corinthians 11 where it lists his resume of all the sufferings that Paul went through. Five times beaten by the Jews, three times with rods by the Romans, shipwrecked three times, a day and a night in the deep, in perils of robbers, in perils of countrymen, in perils of my own Jews, in perils of the heathen. He suffered and suffered and suffered. That's why he says, we are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We have lots of troubles, but it never pushes us to the point where we're ready to give up. Because he didn't give up, he put his trust in the Lord. We are perplexed. Sometimes I face decisions, I have doubts and dilemmas, but I do not know instantly how to answer, but we are not in despair. What is despair? The loss of hope. When you lose hope, that's one of the worst conditions for a human being. Paul never lost hope. David didn't lose hope because they put their hope in God. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Though we're being persecuted by others, God has not forsaken us. Even though no one stood with Paul when he appeared before Caesar in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Lord stood with him. Paul said, the Lord stood with me and delivered me out of the mouth of the lion. Cast down, but not destroyed. We, You are allowed to get cast down, and you will from time to time. That means you'll be a little discouraged, but it cannot destroy you if you trust in the Lord. This is Paul giving us an example of how to live. Cast down, yes, but not destroyed. Yet I do not give up on serving the Lord. Verse 10, Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our body. This earthen vessel that I have, this clay body that is not very strong, everywhere I go, I am subject to death. Remember, he was stoned once and left for dead. He was beaten eight times. This by, I'm, I'm always giving an example of how a Christian can bear up under persecution and trouble and the fear of death, even as Jesus did, so that you can see in my weak body that Jesus Christ, who is resurrected and sits at God's right hand, gives me strength to go on. Amen. Even though I'm weak, even though I'm facing death all the time, I can still go on by the life-giving strength of the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what verse 10 means, and verse 11 means the same thing. It's just repeated in a slightly different way. For we which live are always delivered unto death for Jesus' sake. We do this for the sake of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're willing to be crucified for Him because He was crucified for us that the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. We prove that Jesus Christ is alive by the fact that we're able to go on another day given all that we suffer. We're able to prove that Jesus is alive by the life-giving strength He gives us. Because here we are preaching the message of a man, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was dead. We're saying He rose from the dead and that He is sitting at God's right hand. The proof of it is, 
How could we go on day after day with all that we suffer unless he was alive and giving us his life-giving strength? He'll explain that in a couple of verses, but we got to keep moving. Verse 12, So then death worketh in us, but life in you. We're always subject to death, persecution, and trouble, so that you, blessed Corinthians, can have life, joy, peace, and happiness. We, the apostles, are the off-scouring of the world, so that you, the saints, can have the good life. That's what it's saying, in effect. We suffer death. Death is working in us. We're always afraid of death because everyone's out trying to kill us. But you can have life in the gospel by having the benefits of our labors. Verse 13, we having the same spirit of faith that David had, according as it is written, I believed, and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. Paul quotes from Psalm 116, verse 10, when David was in great affliction, he says, we, I believed, therefore have I spoken. I was in great affliction. That's Psalm 116, verse 10. Paul said, we're just like David. What we are preaching to you people, we totally believe. We believe it, and therefore we spoke it. When we preach the gospel to you and make manifest the truth, we truly believe it. And the evidence that we truly believe it is look at what we're suffering for it. Right. Therefore we speak, because we're certainly convinced of these things, and our actions prove it. Knowing that he, verse 14, knowing that he which raised up the Lord Jesus shall raise up us also by Jesus and shall present us with you. We know that no matter how much we're persecuted, we, we know that no matter how they kill us, God is going to raise us up someday and present us to himself along with you, and that'll be worth it all. When we stand with you Corinthian saints before God, it'll be worth all the suffering we've gone through. Verse 15, for all things are for your sakes. This is where he really defends his ministry. Everything God has done and everything that I and Timothy are doing are for your sakes. Obviously, we're not choosing this suffering for our sakes. We're choosing it for your sakes. For all things are for your sakes. Our great goal is to help you Corinthians that the abundant grace... If anybody ever believes the gospel and is ever converted, it is not just a little grace. It is not just a lot of grace. It is abundant grace. That the abundant grace might, through the thanksgiving of many, redound to the glory of God. Paul is saying, Timothy and I are willing to go through all these sufferings to accompany the grace of God in your lives so that greater thanksgiving will go up to God because of us laboring to teach you the precious things of the gospel, so that through a multiplication of converts, greater thanksgiving and praise can go up to God. That's that 15th verse. When it says redound, that means to abound, to be excessively in supply, an abundance of something, redound to the glory of God. Paul was willing to labor and to work privately from house to house, in public, so that there would be more converts of God's elect children to know the knowledge of Jesus Christ to give God greater glory. He, what was his goal? The glory of God and the conversion of those Corinthian saints. Verse 16, for which cause? Which cause do you think that might be? The glory of God and the conversion of Corinthian saints, but pr- particularly the glory of God. For which cause we faint not. We do not faint or give up even though we're facing a lot of opposition. But though our outward man perish, 
Yet the inward man is renewed day by day. Amen. They can whip my body. They can imprison me in prison. They can beat me with rods. They can stone me and leave me for dead. But, and though my outward man perishes, and it's getting weaker. You know, some of us are getting weaker just from age. And we do get weaker from age. But Paul was getting weaker from abuse that was being put on his body. Though my outward man is perishing, God sends me strength every day in my heart. And this is a wonderful verse for you to lay hold of. Though our outward man perish, yet the inward man is renewed day by day. It doesn't say week by week or year by year. It's day by day. God chose 24-hour periods of time called days, and that is how we're supposed to live. And I've preached a message to you entitled Living Life One Day at a Time because there's great wisdom in that. God sends strength for a day. One day at a time. And he expects you to get up the next day and seek your strength from him and he will supply it. And he supplied it for Paul. Verse 17. For our light affliction. When it says our, that's Paul and Timothy. For our light affliction. He's making fun of your afflictions. Indirectly. For our light affliction. This is a very eloquent verse. Amen. By the, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. For our light affliction which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. I want you to notice a couple contrasts in that verse. Light, weight. Light affliction, weight of glory. For a moment versus eternal. It's a contrast. Paul is saying, though I've been beaten eight times, stoned once, shipwrecked three times, and so forth and so on, though that's happened... I count that a light affliction for a moment. I would do this. Paul, 20 years of being tortured, persecuted, and chased through the Roman Empire is a light affliction for a moment? Paul would say, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, when compared to the exceeding and eternal weight of glory. A moment... Versus eternity. 20 years compared to eternity is how long? It doesn't measure. How can you compare it to infinity? Can you compare it to infinity? Nope. You can't compare it to infinity. 20 years, 40 years, 60 years, it doesn't matter. It's compared to infinity. It's nothing. Because eternity is infinity. Paul's saying, I'm going to be in heaven forever and ever. Who cares about a few years now? I'm going to be in heaven with glory. Who cares about with a weight of glory? Who cares about this light affliction? It's a wonderful verse. And this is how we ought to think. This is how a Christian looks at life. That no matter what happens today in my life, no matter what has happened today in my life, I've got an eternal weight of glory. I've got to add three more words, though. Paul wasn't, the Holy Spirit wasn't going to let you get away with just light affliction for a moment versus eternal weight of glory. He has three more words. What are they? Far more exceeding. Now, I think the verse would be pretty strong if it said, for our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is not equal to an eternal weight of glory. But do you know what Paul, the Holy Spirit put in there through the Apostle Paul? A far more exceeding. Because that weight of glory is far more exceeding than any light affliction that you endure or hear 
for just a moment. And here's how he sums up the chapter and tells you how he looked at life. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. Now, you know there's a play on words in that, don't you? Because he said, while we look at the things, while we look not at the things that are which are seen, but we look at the things that are not seen. Well, now, how can you look at something that you can't see? How can you look at something that you can't look at? What's he talking about there in that 18th verse? The eyes of faith. If these two little muscles in your forehead, if these two little balls here can see something, it's temporal. The Lord's going to take it away. And I'll tell you, in just a few years, if Jesus doesn't come, we're going to have the little oxygen nose right here, and we aren't going to care what these two things can see. We're, We're going to want to lay hold of something by faith. We're going to want to lay hold that there's a chariot in that room that is going to take us to heaven and keep us there forever. You're going to want to be looking at a whole lot more than these. Do you know what the world does when they're laying there with that little hose? And they've got one, two days or a week. They turn the television on and blow any sensible thoughts right out of their head with what they can see and what they can hear. But a godly man is going to want to lay there and he's going to call for his friends to come around and read the Word of God to him and sing to him. And he's going to reach with the eyes of faith right out of this world into the next world. And the Lord is going to grasp his hand and he's going to go there. Well, we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. Every young person in here, I know the vanity of being a young man. I was once a young man. If you're 16, I want to tell you something about me. I was once 16, and then I got to think about being 16 for the whole year that I was 17. See, I'm one step ahead of you. But then I thought about being 17, and the perspective I had on being 16 when I was 18, I'm two steps ahead of you. If you're 16 years old in here, do you know what attracts you? What you can see, what you can hear, what you can touch, taste, and smell. Do you know what the Bible tells you if you want to be a great man? You will recognize that everything you can see, hear, touch, taste, and smell is temporal and it's going away. That there's a whole other sphere of things outside of the sight that these two little balls can lay hold of. These little eyeballs can only reflect what's right in front of me that's tangible. But there is in the soul of a born-again child of God eyes that look out of this world and into the next and see Jesus Christ the Lord of heaven and earth, and eternal glory in heaven. That is what we need to think about. Every time you turn the television on, the only things that can grab it are your little muscles in your forehead. But you read the word of God, and the muscles in the forehead and the ears and the the audio nerves in your ear do not like this message. But there is in every child of God a new man that loves it. And it's that new man that has a different sort of vision. He looks into heaven. Paul went on to say, For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Young man, you look at some beautiful girl. If you're a 16-year-old young man and and you see a beautiful 16-year-old girl and you think that's the most beautiful thing you've ever laid eyes on, I want to tell you something. In just a few years, she ain't going to be very beautiful. And I'm not saying that to be mean. And young man, you look in the mirror and you think you're pretty beautiful. I know what you do in the mirror. You flex in the mirror. Because the Bible says the glory of a young man is his strength. You look at that and you say, what a stud. You talk to yourself. Do you know how I know that? 
because I was once in your shoes. But you know what? God takes that away. Mm-hmm. Because everything that you can see is temporal. I want to tell you something that will last forever. And that is a soul that is committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. If you will humble yourself this morning, and only a born-again child of God can do it, if you will humble yourself this morning and say, I've lived too much by sight, I want to live by faith. I've put too much confidence in things I can see and touch. I want to put confidence in things that I believe by faith from the Word of God. You will be a great man. God will be pleased. And when we're presented to God someday in heaven, we'll rejoice together. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word for us to live those kind of faithful lives. Amen.